Are you full today or do you feel empty? It's an absolutely serious question. Do you feel full of God's blessings in your life? Or does it feel a bit like God has put on his out of office and goodness knows where he is, but he's not answering emails? Do you feel empty of God's blessing? Just take a moment to ask that question of yourself. Feeling full or feeling empty? Now, for me at the moment, I've had an amazing six weeks, particularly in my professional context. And I have to say this in the context of the reality, which is that I am actually incredibly blessed all of the time. But you know there are some seasons in life where you really feel it. And in the last six weeks, in my professional context, I have felt incredibly blessed by some of the things that God has been doing. I've spent years and years and years and years and years studying and learning my so-called area of expertise. And um, although I don't feel like an expert, in the last few weeks, a number of things have come together which have represented the affirmation of some others that I've actually got somewhere in all these years and years of studying. And so in many ways, I feel full of the blessing of God, though I've spent a long time thinking I'm this big pretender who really doesn't know very much about anything. There's been a real sense of acceleration in the last six weeks, and it's been a real sense of fullness and of God's blessing. However, I have also known what it is to be empty. There was a season in my early mid-twenties, it was a four-year season without let-up, where I found myself in a depression that was quite deep. I was never tempted to commit suicide, but I, more than one occasion, did go to bed praying that I wouldn't wake in the morning. So I know what it is to have been empty. Now, I was a Christian at that point. Don't get me wrong. I was a Christian. I knew the blessings of God, but I knew what it felt to feel empty. And so I asked that question in all seriousness. How do you feel today? Do you feel full of the blessing of God, ready to give it away? Or actually, do you feel empty? Do you feel weak? Because I think we see examples in our text today of both. We start in Ruth 4 with an example of a man who is full of good gifts to give away. His name is Boaz. He's described here as a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer, we've probably picked up through the preaching in the last few weeks, is a technical term that comes from the Torah. The Torah is the Jewish law. And specifically in Leviticus 25.25, it talks about this kinsman redeemer. The deal is when a man in Israel becomes so poor that he needs money to live on, he can sell his land. But in order for the land to stay in the wider family, he sells it to the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer is a close relative whose responsibility it is to buy that land so the poor man has some money to live on and so that the land never goes too far out of the family. And this is what Boaz is to the two empty women we've been looking at throughout the passage, Ruth and Naomi. He is their kinsman redeemer. And so we see the process of kinsman redemption happening in verses 1 to 10 of our passage. Boaz goes to the gate. Now the gate you might think is a weird place to go, but the gate is the place of city leadership. So he goes to the gate in order to make this transaction. And he's already told us in chapter 3 verse 12, he's not the closest kinsman redeemer. There's another one who has the right, the preference Uh, who can make this transaction first if he wants to. And as it happens, as it so often does in this story, as it happens, he ends up seeing this guy at the gate and he says, look, here's the deal. 
Do you want to act to redeem this land? And by the way, if you redeem this land, you also need to marry the widow, Ruth. And the kinsman redeemer at first, you saw in the text, is like, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll buy the land because this is a good financial deal for him. This absolutely works for him. He knows he can make money out of this land. But then a few moments later, it becomes clear that Ruth is part of the deal and suddenly he backs off. He goes, oh, no, 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 I can't buy the land, actually. It's not such a good deal afterwards. It's going to impair my inheritance. If I had more than 20 minutes, I would love to tell you why I think he does that, the way he comes forward, first of all, and then suddenly backs off when he realizes that Ruth is part of the deal. But for the sake of today, either way, when Boaz makes Ruth part of the deal, he does back off. He waives his rights, which leaves space for Boaz to come riding in on his white horse. And that's what he does. We see him buying the land, we see him claiming Ruth as part of this transaction, as his wife, and he says specifically about continuing the name of the dead husband. It's a bit weird, but this is how it worked in Jewish culture, that when he would marry Ruth, the child they would have, the first son, would be deemed to be the child of the dead man, which is Marlon, Ruth's previous husband. So it sounds a bit weird to our ears, but this was perfectly normal in Jewish culture. So when he says he's going to continue the name of the dead, that's the deal. That's what he's talking about. And what we see, I think, in the example of Boaz as kinsman redeemer is a man, not unlike you or me, who has blessings, who has resources, who has fullness, and from his fullness gives of what he has to restore or to redeem Ruth and through Ruth, Naomi. And so he gives of his resources, he buys the land, but he also gives of his very self because he offers himself in marriage to Ruth. And I think when Boaz does this, what he understands is something I've talked about when I preached on Ruth 1 in one of the other other services, that covenant with Yahweh in Israel always meant this vertical relationship, you and God. But it was such that the other side of the coin was also horizontal relationship with his people. And so the way the Jewish covenant works, and it's true in the new covenant as well, is that if you want to be in relationship with God that has to overflow into love for his people. And I think Boaz knew that. So Boaz gave willingly of his fullness as an expression of his covenant faithfulness towards God. Loving God means loving his people. And so Boaz loves Ruth. He loves her in a really practical way. He loves her with financial support. He loves her with the gift of social standing and security. And I know that doesn't sound very romantic. But you have to understand, this is the difference between life and death for Ruth and Naomi. Now, at this point, let me interject. I'm not sure it is all that romantic, this story. I appreciate that most preachers on Ruth talk about the beautiful story of love between Ruth and Boaz. And I don't entirely buy that, not yet at any rate. Boaz, no doubt, liked her because as soon as she showed up in his field, he noticed. I don't think he's sad to be marrying this woman. I think he's seen this woman and liked her and been ready to marry her perhaps for a while, but hasn't done anything about it. But now he is delighted to uh, have this woman as his wife. But I look at it also from the side of Ruth. 
Ruth, you've got to remember, is recently bereaved. She's lost her husband not that long ago. She may be out of the period of mourning for him, but she may not be. She may have cut that short in order to make this marriage. We don't know. But we certainly know that it's an arranged marriage. It's a marriage of convenience. It's a marriage that is going to help her and Naomi survive. Bear in mind also, not only is she recently bereaved, she's been trapped in a social system. This is life or death for her. It shouldn't be. The social system should have come through for her. There's a number of things in Ruth 1 that the townspeople could have done in order to make sure that these women were looked after. But they do none of it. I don't know if you notice, the townspeople get referenced in chapter one. They do nothing, and then they don't show up again until chapter four when the deal's done and all the hard work of loving is over. So you've got to bear in mind, Ruth is a woman who's recently bereaved. She's a foreigner. She's stuck in a country where really she doesn't have that many choices. And I don't know whether she was marrying for romantic love. The text doesn't tell us. But I think we have to be careful about assuming immediately that's what it was. Whether or not it was romantic love, though, it was still love. What Boaz did for Ruth, the way that he gave out of his fullness, that is still love. And the text has called him a worthy man in 2.11, uh, I think it is, or 2.1. He's called her, she's, he, he's been called a worthy man. And in 3.11, she's been called a worthy woman. So these are good people put together. They love God. And in that sense, what Boaz has done in giving from his fullness, the fullness of his resources, but also of his very being, is actually to channel the redemption or restoration that God himself wanted to bring to these poor, empty women. Boaz, if you like, as a human kinsman redeemer, has been the channel of the divine kinsman redeemer's work. And he's honored for that. Now, bear in mind I told you this weird thing whereby the child of this union was going to be officially Marlon's child, the child of the dead husband... You would therefore expect in the genealogy, which is verses 18 to 22, where it talks about the ancestry, you would therefore expect the father of Obed, the child, to be named as Marlon, wouldn't you? But look who's there. Look who's actually in that genealogy. It's not Marlon. It's Boaz. When it really matters, when we're naming the ancestry of the king who would define all kingship in Israel, King David, and ultimately the ancestral line through whom the Christ would come, when it really matters, Boaz is presented as the father, not Marlon. And I think in that sense, the text really honors what Boaz has done. He has been a channel of God's redemption and restoration. So here is the first point I think that we can take from this text. Those who are full of good things, like Boaz, can channel God's redemption and restoration. So verses 9 and 10, if you have a look in the text, you'll see that Boaz has solved the immediate problem. Ruth and Naomi's lack of security, their lack of social standing has been dealt with. He says, I've bought Elimelech's land, and I have bought Ruth in order to maintain the name of the dead. Now, admittedly, what you have in verses 9 to 10 is some kind of formal legal declaration. 
So to some extent, the form of the words you can expect would be fairly fixed. But I don't know, if you look at 9 and 10, do you notice how central is the I? I have done this and I have done that. There's no reference by Boaz to Yahweh at all in those verses. And actually, in one sense, he's right. He says, you know, I have bought this land of Elimelech. Well, yeah, he's right. He has bought this land. But he also says, and now I will make this woman pregnant. Now, bear in mind, Ruth is quite possibly infertile. She's, as far as we can see from the first few verses of chapter one, she's had 10 years of marriage with Marlon. That's the most logical reading of those verses. She's had 10 years with Marlon and 10 years without giving birth to a child. Now, you need to understand in that culture, to be a woman was to have children. Once you were married, that was what a woman's job was. You did not, as a woman, choose not to have children. And really, you didn't just want children in general. You wanted a son because a son would carry on the family name. There is no way Ruth and Marlon chose not to have children. But they had no children. Now, later on in Jewish history, the rabbinic tradition, the teachers, the rabbis would say, if a woman and a man have not had a child together after 10 years, he may divorce her for her barrenness he can go and start another family and continue his name. So Ruth is almost certainly barren. That's what would have been assumed in that culture. That's what Boaz would have assumed. Of course, it's perfectly possible that the problem was with Marlon, but the culture and Boaz himself would have assumed the problem is with Ruth. Which makes his whole statement about, I paraphrase, getting her pregnant quite interesting. He must have known she was probably barren, but he was really, really, really confident of his ability to maintain the name of the dead. And then, surprise, surprise, verse 13, Ruth does get pregnant. The um, NIV that we've got in here, which is the NIV 1984, talks about um, him going, going to her. The later translation, which I think is, is it the TNIV or the 2011? It's the TNIV, which is a, a later translation, a translation in the 2000s, which we have over at St. Albans, talks about making love. That's what that's about. He goes and makes love to her. And you know what? There's a child. And this bit makes me laugh because it's like Boaz is proven right. He is the man. He is generous to a fault. He is self-sacrificial. He is worthy. All the townspeople think he's wonderful. And he is obviously, evidently, incredibly virile. Or so the story would go if the narrator didn't interject at this point. The narrator makes only two interjections specifically about Yahweh in the whole of this book. The first one is in 1.6, where the narrator says that Yahweh had caused food to be uh, available in Bethlehem. And the second one is here in chapter 4, verse 13. Mixed in amongst all the things that it says Boaz did is this handful of words, Yahweh enabled her to conceive. Not Boaz. 
Yahweh. This point is important enough that the narrator makes one of only two interjections in the entire book about what Yahweh does. Yahweh enables the conception of Obed, the baby of promise, not Boaz. Boaz did his part, and we all know what Boaz's part is. But Boaz's part would not have made a difference in a barren womb. despite the way he speaks in verse 10. Now, we have seen that Boaz is a genuine channel of the divine kinsman redeemer's blessings and restoration to others. And this does not take away from that. But I think what we see here is that he is not the only channel and he's not even a sufficient channel. He is not by himself enough. It's interesting here that it is Ruth, empty Ruth, Barren Ruth, the one who has nothing yet, who sacrifices herself in covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. It is Ruth who becomes the channel of an overflowing restoration to Naomi. Boaz had solved the immediate problem. He did his very best to solve the longer-term problem of needing a child. But actually, it was in the context of Ruth's barrenness and the Lord's intervention that this baby came forth. And actually, we see then that what Boaz can't do from his fullness, God does through Ruth's emptiness. What Boaz's strength can't do... God does through Ruth's weakness. And interestingly, if you follow the whole book, it is repeatedly Ruth's weakness and Ruth's emptiness that is the channel channel of restoration to Naomi. At the beginning, it's her weakness, it's her hopelessness that says, nevertheless, yet I will covenant with you and I will go to this scary land that I've never been to. And then in chapter two, she has absolutely nothing to give but her own self as she goes into those fields and she grafts long, hot days in the sunshine, bringing in this harvest. Again, it is Ruth's weakness, her emptiness that leads her even to put her reputation on the line in chapter three. She has nothing else. This is all she has. She is empty apart from this, but she will take even her reputation and put it on the line and take a risk that she will be judged badly for what she does in chapter three. And then finally, perhaps even sacrificing her own feelings in what certainly is an arranged marriage and may not be a marriage of romantic love from her side at this stage. And it makes me think a little bit about how she might have felt on her wedding night, whether it brought back for her memories of the same thing with Marlon, each time failing to bring forth a child. And I wonder what that cost for her, to take a risk again, to take a risk of pain again, to take a risk of failing again. Yes, new husband, But what if it was the same broken dreams and the same desperate lack of hope? There's only so many times you can keep putting yourself out there on the line, isn't it? Taking a risk. And yet Ruth does it. That's all she has to give is her emptiness. But she does that. 
And so it seems to me that it's because of her faithful obedience to God. It's because of her willingness to trust God that even her weakness, even her emptiness, and ultimately her barrenness become the context, the place in which God, the God who delights to bring life through barren places, in which that God acts. Because it is she who brings forth from a barren womb the greatest redemption of all of them. She brings forth what is referred to in verse 14, certainly of some translations of the NIV, I didn't get a chance to check this one again, as the next generation kinsman redeemer. That's who Obed is. Obed, the son, is the next generation kinsman redeemer who will now look after Naomi and implicitly also uh, Ruth. But not only is Obed the one who is brought forth through this barrenness, ultimately in the same family line will be the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the divine kinsman redeemer who becomes flesh and dwells among us. And so it's in the context of Ruth's emptiness that she brings forth something that Boaz in all his strength never could have done. And so here I think is the second point, that those who are empty channel God's restoration love too. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes it is emptiness, not fullness, that is the context of the greatest restoration of all. So the first point, if you remember, was God delights to bring redemption and healing through those who are full, through those who are blessed. And the text celebrates the generosity of Boaz in all that he does for Ruth and through Ruth for Naomi. It celebrates this as the overflow of Boaz's greater love for God. And there is no shadow on this. This is celebrated. There is no shame in experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. But perhaps there is a challenge out of that to some of us today. I know I hear it. Having started where I started with my own experience of a real blessedness, a real fullness in my professional context in the last couple of months, I am asking that question. That blessing is great for me, but how is it going to overflow to bring restoration and healing and redemption to others? How do I need to channel it? Who are the ones whom I need to love out of this place of fullness? And maybe if you're here today and you feel that you're in that place of fullness too, maybe those are the questions that this text asks you to bring to yourself. So yes, absolutely, that's the first point, that God delights to use those who are full like Boaz. But the second point is supremely, this is a God who nevertheless delights to use emptiness too. Those like Ruth who offer their emptiness to God, who do not deny it, and yet who will continue in covenant faithfulness with him, he uses that. I began also by speaking of my own history of depression. And I will not minimize the emptiness of that. I will not minimize how overwhelming that was. I don't speak lightly of facing your emptiness and not turning away. 
I don't speak lightly of standing in the face of it and grabbing onto Jesus' hand and thinking, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this, but I will not turn away. And I think that is what this text calls those of us who experience emptiness towards. That we would take the hand of Jesus and we would face that emptiness head on and not run away. That we would continue in obedience and faithfulness to Christ. Not because the emptiness is good, it's not. But because God is good and that God who is good can turn that emptiness into almost, if you like, a womb out of which life comes. And I know how hard that feels when you're in that place of emptiness. It doesn't feel like a place of life whatsoever. The gut instinct is to run as far as you can, as fast as you can. But my testimony is this. If you can hold on to Jesus, if you cannot turn from that place of emptiness, but instead can face it, there is life the other side. And for me, it wasn't just that I experienced healing in that stage of my life, but it's actually that that stage of my life has been a context out of which healing has flowed, flowed for others. I have a compassion now for people who are experiencing depression or the spiritual darkness of God, which I do think is something different that has similar aspects. I have a compassion for that now. I also have a testimony of hope. I have walked that. And I can say now from experience he is good and life does overflow out of the empty places so as I draw to a close then I do think there are these two responses and which is the response to which the text calls you depends on how you identified yourself at the beginning of the preach do you experience the fullness of God in your life right now or do you experience emptiness because if you experience the fullness of God, if you're like Boaz, if, if life is good and life is full, and the question this text demands of us, I think, is where is the overflow going to be directed? How is this joy and goodness and blessing going to be directed to others? What am I going to do to love the one in front of me from this place of richness? But maybe you're here and you feel empty, and maybe you've not even told anyone that. That's okay, but the Lord knows, and his call to you is hold on. Don't let go of Jesus. I know that his idea of doing things in his own time is sometimes a little frustrating because his own time is a lot longer than we would choose. But even so, hold on. Hold on. Because you trust, like Ruth, that, that place of emptiness, that place of barrenness, that place where nothing grows anymore, where there's no hope, that place can be the source of life and redemption and restoration and healing for you, but not just for you, for others through you in the days to come. Amen. May it be so.